If you have your Bibles, if you please turn in to Psalm 132, and let me encourage you and everyone, children, adults, find a copy of the scriptures in front of you, or turn on your screen, or whatever you have. Uh, we have a long passage to deal with this morning, and it's going to be a lot to follow and a lot to keep up with, and looking here in the Word of God will aid us. In that manner. Psalm 132, we are near the end of our sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms are Psalms 120 through 134, and we are on our third to last Psalm in this series this morning. Psalm 132, this is the holy, inerrant, authoritative word of God to us this morning. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of J.R. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would, by your Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears, that we may see wonderful truth here in your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever lost something that was seemingly important to you or, or not very important, but whatever that thing was that you lost, it literally kept you up at night. You felt like you could not function correctly until you found that one thing that was lost. Well, for me, as you know, my family and I have just moved here recently, and I cannot find my Greek Bible. And so if you've seen it laying around anywhere on the streets of Huntsville, let me know. <laughs> I can't find it. It's driving me nuts. <laughs> but that's just a, a trivial thing. 
Because in Scripture, there are a couple of stories, there are a couple of instances in the Old Testament where we see that there was something lost, and when it was finally found by God's people, it had a profound impact upon God's people. The first such story that I want to mention to you is in 2 Kings chapter 22. You don't have to turn there for time's sake, but just keep that in mind, 2 Kings chapter 22, and a corresponding uh, passage is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And at this point in the history of Israel, at this point in the history of God's people, we see that there was king after king after king who failed to keep the statutes of the Lord, who failed to walk in the ways of the Lord, and they were, in fact, evil kings of Israel. They did not walk in the paths or in the ways of their forefather, King David. But we do have from time to time where a righteous king does pop up in the nation of Israel, and we see a time of prosperity and success among God's people. And in one such time is when young Josiah, at just the age of eight, took the throne in the kingdom of Israel. Now that's a scary thought, I almost have an eight-year-old. <laughs> an eight-year-old comes into Uh, the line of David, and comes to take the throne of the kingdom. And there was something very interesting about this eight-year-old. The Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He loved the Lord. He followed the Lord and walked in the ways of his forefather, King David. And at the time that Josiah took the reign and began to come into his kingdom and began to rule the kingdom as he grew in progressed in age and grew in godliness and in stature and in favor with God and man, we see that the Lord put it in his heart to restore true worship and true honoring of Yahweh God to the people of Israel. And so at this time, the temple was in shambles. It was in disarray. It was essentially a broken down house of God. And he had it in his mind to repair the temple. And in during the construction and repairs that were going on in the temple, something very extraordinary happened. They found a copy of the book of the law. And that seems very odd to us in this days. What if this church or every church in Huntsville is just broken down, dusty, needed repairs, and some Christians came in, decided to start repairing these places, and say, hey, look what we found. We found a Bible. We have Bibles everywhere, right? They're, they're everywhere. We have them on our phones. They'll probably be on our watch very soon. They're, we have copies of the Scriptures everywhere, but not so during ancient times. Copies of the law of the Old Testament Bible were, were rare. At this, uh, this was part of the reason that this Scriptures was lost, was forgotten, was not used, and as a result... You had many evil kings reigning because the word of God was not present in their light to instruct their rule or to instruct the people. So it was more than likely that the copy of the scriptures, the book of the law, was not just lost, it was ignored, it was forgotten, it was put away. And we see that this was a colossal failure from what scripture says in Deuteronomy 17, that all the kings of Israel 
or to have their own copy of the book of the law. It actually says they were supposed to write themselves their own copy of the book of the law. And after the book of the law was discovered by Josiah's priest, the word was read in front of the king and in front of the people. And it was studied by the priest. And subsequently, it led to many reforms in Josiah's kingdom and many reforms in the priesthood. And what was lost had now been found and God's people were radically changed because the word of God went out from the priest, from the king to the people and hearts were changed and Yahweh was worshipped rightly. What was lost and then was found brought a profound change in the life of God's people. Another such story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And again, correspondingly, in 1 Chronicles chapters 13 through 16. These passages, and again, for time's sake, they're very long. We don't have time to read them. But these passages serve as background for what is going on in Psalm 132. Psalm 132, our psalm this morning, is very much founded in redemptive historical fact. You actually have to go look up a little bit of history to see and to understand what is going on in Psalm 132. Uh, We will dive into these passages in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles uh, a little more detail in in a bit. But here to say what should suffice for now is that what's going on here is that the Ark of the Covenant... Maybe you're hopefully familiar with the ark from the Old Testament that God prescribed to his people to build. It was the symbol of God's presence with his people. And the ark was lost at this time in the history of David's reign. And David figured out where it was, and he had it in his mind and heart to see it brought up to Jerusalem to be placed in the temple that he was to build. The arrival of the ark in Jerusalem was now a a great cause for worship and for praise because all the wonderful promises made by God were being lauded because Yahweh God was going to bless his people abundantly and he was going to establish an everlasting kingdom in Jerusalem and the ark being brought up was symbolic of that. So what was lost, the ark, was then found, and it brought a profound change in the people of God, as the presence of God was now with his people in Jerusalem. But more to come on that here in a moment. So we have before us this very long psalm, Psalm 132. I've really been enjoying diving into these three little verses per psalm with you. But now we come to something quite long and quite detailed in the Psalms of Ascent. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why is it so long? Why is this psalm uh, important? And why is it even a psalm of ascent? Well, Psalm 132 is not the last psalm of the Psalms of Ascent. 
We know that they go all the way up to Psalms 134. But we've been studying how there's been a steady, almost geographical progression, a step up as we move through the Psalms of Ascent. And we know these steps, these progressions as we walk with the Lord, as we follow these pilgrims on their journey to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship. In Psalm 132, they are there. They have made it. The pilgrims have arrived in the holy city to worship at one of the three annual feasts. And so next week, as we look at Psalm 133, we will look at the unity that believers enjoy as they are together to worship in the holy city. And then Psalm 134 will deal with those who serve in the house of the Lord at his temple. But Psalm 132, they're there. They've reached Zion. And this psalm is given much space in Scripture because it's saying something profoundly significant. This is why it is given so much emphasis. This is why there's so much history and theology in this psalm. The significance of this psalm is really twofold. And as you look down there through the scripture passage, you might see this. First, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to Jerusalem in David's day. And so the first half of this psalm is dealing with the joy of that, specifically in verses 6 and 7, where it says, We heard of it in Aphrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar, and it says, Let us. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us go to where the ark is being brought up. Secondly, we see that this psalm has profound significance because of the promise of the Messiah. The messianic promise that is reiterated to the people of God by the fact now that the ark had come to reside in Jerusalem. So what is an ark? And why is it so significant? Maybe your theology is extremely warped like mine was when I was a teenager. And of course I know what the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knows that Harrison Ford movie. It's wonderful. Indiana Jones and the Ark. Who doesn't know that, right? (laughs) But the Ark is far more than a novelty in a movie. It has a very profound symbolic significance in the Old Testament because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the presence of Yahweh God to his people. You may recall some very specific instructions that Yahweh God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 7. He said, you're to build an ark and you're to build it with these very specific instructions. It's going to be this size and this width, and it's going to contain these things, and it's going to have all this stuff laid over it. So essentially, what was the ark? It was a box, probably about yay long and yay deep. It was overlaid with pure gold. Uh, within it, we know that it contained, some, uh, it contained the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets given to Moses by Yahweh God. It also contained some of uh, the manna that the Israelites collected on their journey to the promised land. The ark contained what was called the mercy seat, 
which is the top of this box that was overlaid with pure gold. And on the ends of this mercy seat would be the cherubim, the golden angels and their wings that would stretch over the top of the ark. And on the top of its covering called the mercy seat, that is where the high priest would sprinkle blood once a year that symbolized the sacrifice for the sins of the people and that God would forgive them. But at this point in the history of God's people and during David's reign, the ark was lost and it was misplaced for several years. But David had in mind to bring it to Jerusalem and to place it in a permanent temple that he wanted to build. The ark was the way that God had chosen at this time to reside among his people. And so that is what we see going on here in the first part of Psalm 132. David's desire to build a temple. And when it says in verse 6, we found it, it is the ark. It is the ark that Yahweh God wanted to bring up, and that is why they say, Arise, go to your resting place, take up the ark, and put it in the temple. So this psalm, though, it's more than just about an ark. It's more than just Old Testament symbolism. This psalm, 132, is a very Christocentric psalm. Christ-centered. It's been called by the church for ages and ages a messianic psalm because of the promises of the Messiah that it gives. This psalm points us to Jesus, and it does that by pointing us back to the covenant promises that God made to David, and it looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be looking backwards so that we can look forward to Jesus. So Psalm 132 shows us a promise that was made by David and a promise that is ultimately manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. So we're going to look at just two parts to the psalm this morning. The first part, a promise made. And the second part, a promise manifested. A promise made and a promise manifested. Look with me in the first ten verses of this psalm where we see a promise made. This psalm begins with a prayer or a plea by by David, we believe. And this is a plea to Yahweh God. When you see in your Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, that's the proper name of God, the covenant name of God, the very personal God of Israel. And the plea is to Yahweh God to remember David's promise to build a house for Yahweh. Remember, O Lord, remember David's heart, how he suffered, how he wanted to build for you a house. And so we recall from Old Testament history that David was intently focused on building a house for Yahweh God. And so consumed was David with this desire that he literally, we have recorded for us here in Psalm 132, an oath that he swore to do it. 
verses 3 through 5, are a swearing of an oath. Where when you made an Old Testament promise like this, if you didn't, if you didn't keep it, you could be killed by law. David was not going to rest until he fulfilled his promise. He had a driven zeal for the Lord. But we later learn that God said, no, David, you're not going to build this house. You can get ready for it, but your son Solomon is going to build this temple. The background for David's zeal to build this temple for the Lord, again, is found in 1 Chronicles 13 through 16. And here we read that David desired that the ark would be brought to Jerusalem. But there was trouble along the way as the ark was being brought to Jerusalem. If there's one message from the Old Testament that we read over and over and over, it's that God is holy, 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 and requires that he, is, that he be treated as holy. And so there were certain stipulations, there were certain statutes, there were rules and laws that God's people had to be following, followed specifically in how they handled the ark. And we read in 1 Chronicles that the ark was mishandled at Kirthi-Jerim. And so Uzzah, who was in charge of leading the progression of the ark, lost his life because he touched it with his hand. And he broke one of the holy commands of God. And in verse 6, here in Psalm 132, when the psalmist records that it was found in the fields of J.R., this is short for the Old Testament place of Kirthi-Jerim, which is where the ark rested for 20 to 30 years until David could get it to Jerusalem. And when the ark was finally brought up to Jerusalem, we read in verse 6 that it was heard about all the way in Ephrathah, which is another Old Testament name and place for Bethlehem. Bethlehem has some important history in the Bible, does it not? And it was cause for great worship of God's people. And that is why they said in verses uh, 7 through 9, let's go up to Jerusalem. Let's worship where the Lord is now resting, where his presence is where the priests offer the sacrifices for righteousness and the saints sing for joy at the salvation of the Lord. Let us go to where God is now chosen as his resting place, where the ark now lives. So this psalm would be sung by the pilgrims as not only they progressed up to Jerusalem as they were now in Jerusalem and it would be somewhat nostalgic for the pilgrims, for the travelers as they would journey, because they were literally tracing the path of the ark as it made its way up to Jerusalem. And this promise made by David was a song of encouragement for the pilgrims in that it pointed the believers to the central focus point of their journey. Where was this ark going? Where was it going to reside? What was going to be its resting place? It was going to be deposited into the temple. The holy of holies. The place where only one priest one time a year would enter and offer a sacrifice for the sins of God's people upon the mercy seat of the altar. 
And so that is why they sing, sing, let us sing, let us rejoice as we go up. And so that is the reason why this word is included in the Psalm of Ascents. They were going to Jerusalem, they were in Jerusalem, because that is the place where grace is, where the promise, where the mercy, where the love of God resides. That is where you go to hear about salvation and actually see salvation through the temple sacrifices. So it was song for rejoicing. The mercy seat on top of the ark, the holy of holies, all these things were but a foreshadow, right, of Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat of God. He is the eternal sacrifice. He is the one who died once and for all. And all of these Old Testament symbols and sacrifices and places point us to Jesus. But we have to be careful here that we don't become new to, too nostalgic <laughs> of what was going on in the Old Testament. Because the Bible is very clear that God does not now reside in a temple. He does not just show up between the cherubim on top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. But we teach that God is everywhere. And his spirit is now tabernacled, is now templed, is now dwelling in the hearts of believers. And the message of Psalm 132 is not that we have to go to a very specific place to do very specific rituals, and then God will show up and bless us very specifically. No, Psalm 132 is calling us to look at a greater reality. It's causing us to look beyond the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and the priestly ministry. Because these things in the Old Testament and for the Old Testament believer were symbols of the means of grace. That's what they were. The temple sacrifices, the incense, the altar, the mercy seat, all these things were symbols of the means of grace. They were the ordinary ways in which God blessed believers in the Old Testament. You want to be blessed, you want to grow in your walk with the Lord as an Old Testament believer, you go to the temple and you participate in the sacrifices and the worship. But this is calls for joy and worship for New Testament believers. No, we don't look to Old Testament symbols to strengthen us in our walk with the Lord. But we look to what the New Testament has given to us as symbols of the means of grace. You might hear that a lot. What are the means of grace? Well, the way that has been traditionally understood by the church since the Reformation is the means of grace are the word, sacraments, and discipline. Word, sacraments, and discipline. The means of grace are the preaching of the word, the studying of the word, the hearing of the word. The sacraments that we have today as a New Testament Reformed church, communion, which we will partake next week, and also next week a baptism, and the following week another baptism, and discipline. We don't offer public spankings here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. <laughs> 
but we do want God's people to be instructed, to be disciplined, to be under the authority of a local church. All these things are the means of grace. They are the ordinary way in which God blesses his covenant people. Just like in the Old Testament, you would go to the temple. In the New Testament, we come and we partake of the word, sacraments, and discipline. These are found to be visibly manifested in the local church. It is exciting. It is encouraging. It is rejuvenating to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day with the people of God and surrounded by the means of grace. Everything that we do, words, sacraments, discipline, they are meant to help you grow, to be spiritually uplifting, to nurture your soul. Are you longing for the means of grace? Are you longing for the means of grace? Are you making the local church central in your life because that is where the means of grace are visibly manifested and enjoyed? Much like the Old Testament temple, we gather together as the New Testament to enjoy, to partake in the means of grace. Let me encourage you. Love the means of grace. Long for the means of grace. Maybe you're having a hard time spiritually right now. Maybe you are just really struggling to pay attention, to worship. Maybe you don't feel like reading your Bible and you just cannot pray. What do you do? The writer of Hebrews actually anticipated this for the local church. And he says in Hebrews chapter 10, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says, of course you're going to feel spiritually down. Of of course you're going to be spiritually dry and struggle in your walk with the Lord, and that is why you need not give up on meeting together on the Lord's day and encouraging one another. Now, I'm preaching to the choir literally this morning, right? Because you're like, I'm here. (laughs) I know I need to be here. But Maybe there's other brothers and sisters that you know are struggling that need to be here too, and you need to tell them why. Because if this is you, if you're struggling spiritually, you know others that are struggling spiritually. This applies to everyone. You know, come to church. Come to worship. Hear the word. Sing the word. Pray the word. Let the sacraments that, again, we'll partake in next week, let them nourish you spiritually. That is what they're there for. We need the means of grace. They are for our joy. And so let us sing. Let us shout for joy as these Old Testament pilgrims did as they progressed to the house of the Lord to be around the means of grace. And they only got to do that three times a year. We get to do that every single Lord's Day. And you don't have to come here all happy, happy, happy. (laughs) You can come here depressed, dried up, exhausted and know 
that the promises are that the means of grace will not return, return void. God will minister to your soul where the means of grace are. And that was all the promise that David had made. But David was just a mere man. Mere men cannot keep big, huge, everlasting, eternal promises. Only God can do that. And so that is why in the second half of this psalm, verses 11 through 18, we see a promise manifested. In verses 1 through 10, we see a promise made by David. But the latter part of this psalm, we see not only a promise that has been made by Yahweh God, but a promise that has been manifested to us today. James Montgomery Boyce said that Psalm 132 is actually an anticipation of Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 is probably my favorite passage. And it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love this passage. I love this promise. Because just when we think we've got it all figured out, just when we see that God does some small miracle or answers some small prayer request or does some small favor in our lives, we see in Scripture and we see in the bigger picture that God is able to do and He does do far more abundant, far greater than we can ask or imagine. And that is what Psalm 132, the second half, proclaims. God does more than David even asked or he could even imagine. In verses 11 through 12, they are hearkening back to this amazing promise that Yahweh God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God made with David where he says that on your throne will always sit one who is of your bloodline, one of your sons. But not only am I going to do that, I'm also going to put one on your throne who will actually reign forever. Now we just throw that turn around a lot, right? Our children do that. It's taken forever to get there. We always talk in terms of forever, but we don't really know what forever means, do we? Yahweh God does know what forever is. And he made this forever promise to David. It takes very little Bible reading, though, for us to realize that this promise was not upheld by all of David's sons, their end of the bargain. So after about 400 years of trouble, we see the last king of Israel gone, deported to Babylon. And it seemed as though Yahweh God was not going to keep his promise because the kingdom had ultimately failed and it was gone. But that was just the earthly kingdom, right? This is where the second part of this promise comes in and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is David's greater son. He is the one who will reign on David's throne in Zion forever and ever. And so in verses 11 through 12, they retell the promise 
that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And in verses 13 through 18, you can see how Yahweh will fulfill his promise. Look there. Verses 13 through 14. The ark will come to Jerusalem. God's presence will dwell there because that is where he chose to dwell. But ultimately, we know that God's presence was going to be established in Zion forever because outside of the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the Savior would be crucified there on a Roman cross. It would be a symbol of God's forever presence. In verses 15 through 16, the covenant presence of God is with his people. And when his presence is with his people, that brings good things, right? That is why there's abundant provisions. That's why there is robust worship led by the priest who will now rightly offer sacrifices on the mercy seat of God. And there will be singing and shouts of joy by all the saints. And in verses 17 through 18, we see that a horn will sprout from David whose crown will shine forever. A horn will was a biblical symbol of strength and of power. And this horn that would sprout from David is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, which the Gospel of Matthew, in his genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, clearly shows that this, this promised eternal son of David is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what joy this song would bring as the pilgrims would sing it and as they now had arrived in Jerusalem to worship. And the reason that they could even sing this song and the reason they even had a worthwhile journey to Jerusalem was because of the fulfillment of these promises made by God. The Christian. We know more now, don't we? We know more now on this side of the cross We know now that God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. We know now that he has manifested himself in Jesus Christ. And so the focal point of our religion, the focal point of our worship is not a box. It's not week after week, month after month, year after year, blood sacrifice made by animals. No, the focal point of our worship is a person. The promised son of David, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed once and for all, that we may be drawn, that we may draw nigh, nigh to God every day. Notice one final thing in this passage. The Bible is excellent making sure that we do not draw glory to a mere man. It is good at making sure that we don't uphold mere men as symbols of everlasting faithfulness. But Psalm 132 does point us away from just talking about David. It's not saying, be like David, 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 look at David, David, David. There's one who's mentioned in this passage actually more than David. He is Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. 
Six times is the proper name of God, Yahweh, used in Psalm 132 to show us that it's all about Him. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is to look to Yahweh God in worship. And that is why we sing, as we sang earlier, Hail to the Lord's anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Great David's greater son. What does he come to do? He comes to break oppression and to set the captive free, to take away transgression and to rule in equity. That is our Jesus. That is the greater son of David, whose kingdom will have no end, who has come to rescue us and to bring us into a kingdom that is everlasting. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Let's come and and worship him, partake of the means of grace, and love the kingdom of God that has been established by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we treat coming to worship, coming to your house on the Lord's day very trivially. We look at it as something that we just need to do and check the box. But Father, you have promised far greater than just making us feel good when we go to church. You have promised us that where the means of grace are present, you will bless us. You will prosper your people. You will strengthen us spiritually. And we thank you for that promise. And we thank you that it has been fulfilled because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We praise you and thank you for that. And we sing to you because of that. In his name.